So what are we going to talk about today? That's what I was going to ask you. <laughs> I don't know what's top of mind at the moment. You know, one of the things that I've been, that's been on my mind, and maybe we talked about this before, but the idea that good enough management isn't good enough anymore. Mm -hmm. Not that it ever was, but the gap between even just a little bit subpar and doing what's what's required from for managing people effectively the the consequences of not doing that are much bigger now the mathematics of bad management is just terrifying it was looking at the maths of bad management or average management missing the 16 to 20 teachable moments a day interruptions per day that the average manager receives from their team asking for help. And they have a choice at that moment. They can either answer the question, do the work, or coach them. Uh huh. What do you reckon most of them do most of the time? Do the work. Or, oh, well, probably, I would guess they, most of them answer the question. Okay. And what do least of them do? Coach. Ah, okay. And th therein lies the rub. Um, yeah. Because if you coach, then you don't have to do it again. So I've been building an ecosystem based on the principle of open source. Uh, the beauty of open source is you only have to solve a problem once. Mm. Mm -hmm. So what I've been working out is how do you solve the wicked problems in sales simultaneously? Well, the first thing you have to do is you've got to cooperate. You can't do it yourself. And you need to find really, 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 really good people. And you have to find people who are not going to take advantage. That's hard. So it's been a labor of love for the last couple of years. I think there's another kind of catch-22 that sales leaders are in, which is, is it Dan Pink with the, who's got the, the now famous video about how reward for performance is... Uh, Sabota actually sabotages performance. Well, absolutely. And in fact, I did a really interesting podcast with Alfie Cohn, who wrote a fantastic book called Punished by Rewards, precisely because it's always struck me as odd that salespeople are not money motivated, by and large. And vendors and founders are convinced that they are, and they're convinced that their partners are as well. They're not. No one gives a damn about money. It comes about fifth or sixth. Once, once a certain level is being achieved, which most of the healthy ones are, then the money doesn't really matter. Up to that point, they're needy, desperate, and broke, and they'll take anything. You know, what Dan Pink is show, shows is that any activity, any task that requires critical thinking and creativity at all, critical thinking and creativity is... is diminished the minute you put a reward on the table. So the catch 22 is it's hard to it's hard to hire salespeople without a commission structure to just say you're salaried and the commission structure then then di di diminishes their performance. And so the key is how do you work out how, how do you create a compensation scheme that recognizes and rewards irrefutably everybody who is involved in contributing? And how do you use it to drive desirable behavior and not the unintended undesirable behavior? Right. And I'm about eight 
to nine tenths of the way to cracking that one, I think, using DAOs. Cool. We still have to overcome the human piece, which is the recruitment side of the ecosystem. Yeah, that's that's the hard part, the hardest part, I think. Right. Okay. But I think I may have got a solution for that as well. So I'm just going on a program uh, to learn about that now. Um, Very cool. It's been developed by a guy called Dr. Alan Watkins. If you haven't read his stuff, you definitely ought to. 4D leadership, step change, and wicked and wise are the three I would start with. Wicked and wise is how to solve the climate change problem um, Mm. and looking at it as you should as a wicked problem, uh, which is lots of moving parts, different stakeholders, messy, whatever you try doesn't work, iterate fast, fail, hopefully survive. If you do then you've got to be long-term selfish because you can't be short-term selfish for this kind of thing to work. So there's another really big issue which is coming to top of mind for me, which is how do we create products that the 80 to 90% of people on the planet who are poor can afford and will value? Yeah. Because actually that's the world's biggest market. Yeah, yeah. A friend, a very close friend and neighbor, uh, her father, I'm trying to remember his name, um, it's eluding me for the moment. He he died in the last couple of years, but he was pretty big in the world of developing products for the third world, essentially. You know, inexpensive products where the the profit comes because of the volume and solving mm-hmm. solving really hard problems. Like, yeah, how do you charge a cell phone when a cell phone is required for micropayments? Yeah, right. How do how do you charge a how do you charge a cell phone in the middle of the bush? Yeah, it's a very, very interesting and fair question for people who are in the bush. Yeah. So for those of you who have been eavesdropping on this green room conversation, this is Aaron Schmuckler. He is the CEO and founder of The Yes Works. He's a culture engineer. You may have heard him sometime last year, but a really very interesting conversation. So I've invited him back so that we can start talking about some of the really interesting challenges that we face ahead. So, Aaron, tell me something. As you look ahead, what do you hear people say they fear? Well, right now, I'm hearing people are, people are scared of the shortage of labor, right? They're, they're scared of that right now, and they're not seeing a solution to it. People are scared of inflation. Justified. Yeah. I think those are the things, you know, when I'm talking to my clients, those are the things that I'm hearing about the most right now. Because I'm hearing a lot about supply chain uh, discontinuity and uncertainty. Right. Yeah, certainly. I was speaking to one company. They they can't take another order for a year. Uh, how do you keep your salespeople? I mean, that, that, that makes you start to think about, is there um, you know, growth potential in the secondary market? You know, how do we add value? Do we have to move into services? But how are people going to respond to what's to come? That, to me, is such an interesting question. You know, when you ask people, what are you doing to prepare for what's to come? People are growing. Some of, some of my clients are, are looking to grow by acquisition. What the economics of that are in this, in this VUCA world of volatility, uncertainty, chaos, and whatever the A stands for. Uh, uh, ambiguity. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know the the it's it's tough, and I'm not I'm not I'm not an economist. That's not where my expertise lies. What I appreciate and what they're doing is that 
the you know, I think the best of the best are are always in this mode of trial and error. They're not trying to get it right 100% of the time. They're hedging their bets. Hedging your bets is not a way to become a skyrocket to the moon. It is a way to to ensure that you have long-term sustainability. And, And this, again, I think is one of the really interesting shifts. I'm seeing so many organizations grow over the last 10, 15, 20 years where it's really been about bigger is better, faster is better. Actually, better is better. And far, far too often businesses have grown and scaled, but without being able to fulfill at the back end. So they've Mm -hmm. grown beyond their capability. And very quickly, they compromise on recruitment. There's a knock-on effect on customers, Mm -hmm. complaints, management, profits, churn. And so many of these problems are related back to just not enough good thinking. Yeah. You know, if, a lot they started, of... if they started with better thinking, they'd probably not let themselves get into these situations. Mm. But then there's ego and then there's politics. Sorry, I interrupted, but it was... No, a... it's okay. No, I, And there's fear. I'll, I'll add there's fear. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, what a powerful force fear is. I love I, one of the things I really enjoy about talking with you, Marcus, is our conversations are are never linear. <laughs> so when you were just talking about about all that, one of the things that occurred to me, I've had numerous conversations this month with with leaders who are saying, I have underperformers, I have chronic underperformers, and because of the shortage of labor, I can't let them go. They say, not only can I not let them go, they also, I find, are unwilling to put their foot down and say this behavior or this lack of performance or coming late, right? These things are unacceptable. They're not willing to do that because they don't want to rock the boat. Uh, well, and I, I think I heard, that, is, that is fearful, bad thinking. I, I heard on Friday, and I'm sure this was me being deaf and stupid, but I heard <laughs> that there were eight vacancies for every applicant in sales on LinkedIn. And that was only last week. Now, wow. exactly. Now, I can't believe the numbers are that bad. So please correct me. Uh, I'm sure I'm wrong. But if they're getting even close to that, yeah. even if it was a one-to-one, but you know, with yeah. the skewing on good copy and all that other stuff, there was a balance, that would be bad. But eight-to-one, that's terrifying. I, even I'm if we're eight-to-one in reverse, that's, that's a little, you know, that's not what I would like. Well, I'm trying to recruit at the moment, and I have to face this question. How do I still hit my quota, which is now three million pounds for one company, uh, Mm -hmm. without a full-time sales team? I've got three part-time salespeople who are very well-intentioned. Yeah, They're not used to selling big scale, large-scale enterprise deals, and I still have to hit that number. So how do I do that when I don't have coverage uh, within the territory? That's a really interesting question. I sure don't know the answer. Uh, The the global answer is probably, you know, you're going to have to be really strategic. Use your time incredibly well. Well, interestingly enough, yes. But then it forced me into thinking, well, who is already selling into the people Mm -hmm. that I want to sell to? How Mm -hmm. can I make it in their interest and in their client's interest? Because I've started looking for things in common as I've grown older. Instead of looking for ways to compete and win, I've now started to look for ways 
that um, what things we have in common and what we can do to cooperate so we can just make the pie bigger. I've eaten a lot of pie in my day, as many people will attest. And I want the pie, I want the pies to keep coming and I want them to be bigger and I don't want to have to sweat trying to get them. Yeah. So I'm so, continuously asking, how can I do less but better on purpose? And I think, I think uh, you know, you just alluded or, or even named this outright. Partnerships are so important right now. Not that they've ever, not that they ever weren't. But we, we earlier we were talking about the things that are spreading the field right now, and I think uh, scarcity spreads the field between you know if you're doing ex- if if your practice is excellent, then you're likely to still survive, and very quickly as you fall off of excellent, you're falling into you're falling into into da- real danger. This I think is where the one-dimensional style of leadership, which focuses exclusively almost on what we do. You know, how do we drive results through doing? It's not through thinking. It's not through relationships. It's not through how we relate. It's typically just driven through how do we drive the metrics? How do we get them to do more dials per hour? How do we get more emails out? This is not the way the real world works. All that is, is they're creating an avalanche of noise, which is deafening. No one's hearing you. And the thing that, so, so not only that, the, the, when you're driving, when you're trying to drive behaviors exclusively, and when you've determined in advance, these are the behaviors that I need from my sales team. And we can, you know, sales team is, is a stand-in for any team. Then you miss out on such on, on a lot of important data and important opportunities. I have a friend who has left his job as a president's club salesperson for a Fortune 500 company because he was a, he was in the president's club. He was performing better than anybody else in his office. Yep, you know, up in up in Bellevue, Washington, right next to Seattle. This is a, a serious economic hub. Yeah, because he was required to come in every day at eight and make 30 minutes worth of phone calls when he knew that if he left his home instead of going to the office to make 30 minutes worth of phone calls, if he were to do something else with his time, he'd be able to bring in more revenue. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that he was a president's club salesperson, he was still required to do this. In other words, the company required him to waste time. Mm, Funny that. again. That is the at least fourth story that I've heard. And the the other three were clients of mine, all of whom were the number one performer in their organization and all of whom have left because they've created a buffer for themselves and they're in no rush. And they've decided to walk away from bad lifestyle Mm. in order that they can pick their next role. Yeah. And many of them are moving away from big organizations where they have this old corporate culture. And I think one of the really interesting things, uh, I spend a lot of time at, in and around tech, but increasingly I'm uh, also exposed to people who work in many, many other industries. And historically I've worked in 500 different segments in 24 verticals. So I'm quite familiar that tech is not necessarily representative of the rest of the world. However, it does shine a light uh, to some degree, except in the area of management, which Mm. frankly is driving out so much talent 
because of this rigid kind of president's club. That's what you've got to do, turn up, do what we tell you. And when I was in the training world, you know, we learned about behavior, attitude, technique. But actually, that's all really about the doing piece. It's about teaching people the skill of selling. And certainly that's how most people interpreted it. It was rarely about the thinking behind it. Mm. Why do we use this technique? Why is it appropriate at this moment with this human being in this context? How do we create those moments where we don't have to use technique? Mm. Because actually the technique, in my experience, is the least important part of the salesperson's skill set. I love that. You know, you're, you're reminding me of my last week. Last week, every day, spent two hours with the same group training them. I hate the term, right? I was hired to train them in soft skills. Mm-hmm. I think of them as, as really, they're hard skills, but just they, we think they're soft because few, very few people have done the work to break them down into the constituent parts that make any skill a hard, measurable skill. So, for example, one of them, these are, these are experts. The client wanted them to, in, in their conversations with, with their clients, wanted them to take control. Not to, be, not to be able to be moved and, and spend a lot of time struggling with the client's ideas about how to do what these folks are expert in doing, but to be able to influence the client more directly, more swiftly to, toward the, the wiser path. That's one example of the, of the kind of skills that, that we were hired to, to train them in. I had them for two hours a day for an hour and a half. I'm essentially asking them to have conversations amongst themselves together and then together with me about the nature of the problem, about why people behave the way that they behave in the circumstances in which they need to influence them to give up control. What are the things that get in your way? What is available to you if you succeed in this? So we're understanding the problem and we're getting into what will motivate you representative of this company to do something different from what you've been doing. That's an hour and a half at the least. Then we spend maybe 20 minutes on here's a tool you can use to accomplish that. But if if you don't motivate people and if you don't help them understand the problem, they're not going to take advantage of it. And one last thing that I'll say is I love cooking shows and I love the cooking shows that teach me the science behind cooking to understand the principles. I never remember the recipe. I remember why do you put the heat on high and yeah. put the meat on the pan and wait until it's brown. That's the stuff yeah. that I why, understand why and then I go cook. The pan, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I get it. Absolutely. I'm obsessive about that stuff as well. This again speaks to so much that is wrong but could be so right because the training component is largely lost because of the emphasis on technique, uh, closing skills, opening skills, Mm -hmm. cold calling skills, objection handling skills. Well, actually, none of that really matters. Experience has taught me over the years that there's about three lines to closing, which is, what do you want to do next? where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. And that's my sum total of technique on closing. <laughs> and you have to know when, the, the trickier part is to know when to ask that question. And how to set that up. 
So it's it's a foregone conclusion, and it's a yes or a no, and there's no middle ground. There's no equivocation. There's no hesitation. You know, you've you've worked with them. You've co-developed the solution. Their fingerprints are all over it. Your fingerprints are all over it. You've worked it together. You've gone back and forth. You've you've suffered together, and you've looked at the problem. And each time they make progress mm-hmm. in their world, they're seeing their problem through a better lens. It's clearer. Einstein, one of my favorite Einstein quotes is given an hour. I will spend 95% of my time on the problem and only 5% on the solution. Mm-hmm. Since I've adopted that as a philosophy, the solutions I come up with are so much more elegant and require way less effort and cost. And yes. the return and the unintended consequences disappear. Right. To that end, or to that point, rather, when we spend at least three quarters of the time on why is it, why are your clients so insistent on control? If they forget the four-step process that I give them for how to get control back, they're still absolutely going to remember that this person is afraid for their job, right? You're, you're bringing in a, a solution that helps, helps with efficiency. And so this person is worried that they're going to become obsolete. Or this person has made a ton of errors. There's a lot of error in the data there are a lot of problems in the data and they don't want those problems to come to light lest they be seen as incompetent, right? They're going to remember that those fears need to be assuaged. Even if they don't remember my four-step process for doing it, they're still miles ahead of where they were before because they understand the problem. They can develop their own solutions in the moment. And again, I think something that's desperately missing is the ability to really think as the customer and thereby be able to ask the right next question to help them make that next leap of understanding. Mm -hmm. Because most interactions with salespeople and most interactions with your marketing is a very bland, beige, um, forgettable experience at best. Sometimes it's grating. So today I had someone in-mail me offering me low-calorie drinks as part of my portfolio of products for me to sell. Now, clearly it was just spam and it, there was a robot and I sent him a very polite message back and you know, suggesting that it wasn't probably helping him. Um, I won't hear back, I'm sure, but I feel better having done my bit. But it, it just strikes me that using, trying to sell all the time being constantly on go, it's wearing for everyone around you. I must have been insufferable. So for anyone who's known me for the last <laughs> 54 years, I am truly sorry. I have no idea just how awful it is. And But salespeople are encouraged to do this, and management encourages people to do this. I have a, I have a, I have a, a hypothesis too, Marcus, that it was really wearing on you. God, yeah. It's, it's, it's tiring because you're, you're just constantly on go and you do next to no thinking. So you just yeah. double down on stupid. Yeah. I, I spent a lot of, I'd, I'd say 17 to 20 years of my 32-year um, sales career have been spent doubling down on dumb. Yeah. You just know, work that, harder. I, I spend a, a lot of my time in training, right? I mean, I, that's what I do mostly is train people or coach and coach people. And most of the time, you know, I've been doing this long enough. I've been doing this since I was a teenager. 
one way or another, training, training people and things that matter to me in ways that are going to make them love their life better. <clears throat> one of the few times that I've gotten a poor rating on my training was a, a live webinar where I had no access at all to interacting with the, with the audience. They're, they're, when, you're, when you're doing acti sales activity in the ways that you've described, one of the things that's incredibly wearing is to be shouting into the abyss. Hmm. And so finding ways of, of really humanizing, of making maybe, maybe fewer outreaches, but more connections, I think just gives people so much more stamina for the work. It does. But you, you, you do wonder sometimes when the results are clearly telling you that they're not improving, why we continue to do more of what doesn't work without question. Mm -hmm. So you then have to wonder about what motivates that behavior and who is responsible for the thinking that's led to it or the lack of thinking that's led to it. So each time you have to keep going up the food chain to mm -hmm. people further up. And so the question is, how do you make those people care enough to stop being complicit in recreating the conditions that don't work, especially now where you have a real struggle on uh, to recruit, to keep people. People are retiring. Uh, people are deciding, you know, there's a better way to live. They're getting side hustles. Uh, you've got inflation. You've got supply chain problems. You're going to have to learn how to play nicely with others at some point. <laughs> uh, there's a, a wonderful thinker uh, and, and teacher in the leadership space named Cy Wakeman. And I'm going to butcher a quote. Uh, I'm going to butcher a quote from her that our circumstances can't be the reasons that we fail, but, it, but rather they are environment in which we must succeed. So I think not only get, is it about getting people to care enough, although that's certainly a piece of the puzzle and depending on, on whom, it's also helping people get past the hopelessness of my circumstances are bigger than me. I'm thinking about, for example, when, when COVID hit, our revenues at the YesWorks took an immediate 90% dive. And I kept doing the kinds of things in my sales life that were working before COVID. And thinking, oh, well, COVID, what you going to do, right? And it took me probably a month before I finally said, hey, hang on a second. You know, I can't live and succeed in this, in this method, in this thinking of, oh, well, COVID, what you going to do? I have to think, huh, COVID, what am I going to do? And kind of analyze the problem, understand it as well as I can and try some shit. Mm -hmm. And double and, down on any place I find I'm getting traction. And in doing that, what were the ba uh, psychological barriers that you had that you had to break through? One was kind of an insistence, this works, right? Like one of the things that, that, ha that worked for me before COVID was picking up the phone and calling, calling CEOs before, at a time before their, uh, their gatekeepers, if you'll pardon the expression. Yeah come into the office, right? So you pick up the phone at 7 a.m., you make a call, even $2 billion CEOs sitting in their office because they're the first person in, they, they often answer the phone and I get to have a conversation. 
So I'm trying this and I'm trying this and I'm trying this. And I have years of experience knowing that this works. So there's a certain refusal to look at at the fact that I'm in a new reality. It's attachment. So there's attachment. There's also fear of, it took me a long time to learn that truth. And I need something that works now. (laughs) And it's a different world that I don't know and I don't understand. And like, how do I even think about this problem anymore? And being concerned, you know, I think one of the things I even started doing was to not call because now people are at home and calling somebody at home at 7 a.m. is really different from calling them in the office at 7 a.m., at least in my head, right? That's one of the psychological barriers for me. Even when I tried, I did get some, look, I'm with my kids right now. I'm taking my kids to school, you know, click. So there's a, so there's a certain just, well, if not this, then what? <laughs> and the answer isn't, isn't easy. One of the things that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a drive, drive, drive kind of guy, you know, in some, I forget what the, I think it's Colby, you know, I'm a quick start. So I have, I have ideas more than I have capacity uh, or at least inclination to institute and operationalize those, those ideas. So an, another obstacle for me was collecting and analyzing the data of what's working for me right now. When the numbers are small, when, when the sample size is small, when the positive hits maybe are infrequent, it really does take not just kind of the gut, okay, what's working, but it does take like laying out the numbers and looking at what, is, even if, even if the, the signal is faint, where's the signal? And so again, as human beings, we're really good at looking for patterns. Um, but I think too often we're blinded by what we expect to see or what we mm-hmm. want to hear. And so uh, again, I think, especially in these times of turmoil that are coming up. For for anyone who thinks that things are going to uh, get better, by and large, that's unlikely for most people. And for most of you who grew your businesses during the pandemic, I have a very cold, uncomfortable and hard truth to tell you. What happened was your market expanded and your message started to resonate with that marketplace. Mm. You hadn't increased your market share. All that happened was the market grew. And because your message was relevant at that time, uh, it got traction and you grew very quickly in most cases. Now the market is starting to contract. You didn't grow your market share. What you did was you found people who at the time your message resonated with, but your message now needs to change because in this current market, they are afraid of harm. They're looking for protection. Mm -hmm. And as we move from boom to bust, they're thinking about how do they survive? What do they need to do day to day? How can we reverse their risk? And they want the details. They want a prescription, one, two, three, do this, do that. And they're looking for certainty. They're looking for leadership, a safe pair of hands. If, on the other hand, your market looks like it's moving into boom and it looks like they're thriving, what they're afraid of there is fear of missing out. Their identity is tied to their performance very often at this stage. And they're interested in the big picture, the aspirational 
they're not interested in getting bogged down in detail. They want things to happen quickly to feed their ego. And this is really about positioning. So when you're in the survival mode, it's how do you reset and clean up? When you're in thrive mode, it's really about the strategy. And if you don't get your message right, no matter how good your product or service is, chances are you'll miss uh, your audience because you're just not going to resonate. As you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, Christopher Lockhead and wrote a book called Play Bigger with with a couple of partners. Essentially, the premise of Play Bigger, which is arguably a marketing book, although what they say is is this idea that they that they're promulgating that they call category creation yeah. is not just marketing, it's a business strategy. Yeah. And so what they're saying is in this book, which I think is wonderful, is there in every category there's a king and everybody else is eating table scraps. Mm-hmm. And you've got to create for yourself a category that is perhaps adjacent to another and then become the king. And if you become the king of your category, then nobody can touch you. So this is an evolution from Jack Traff and Al Reese's work uh, back in the 80s, where they developed marketing warfare as a concept. It's a brilliant and simple concept. The number one in the category will typically in a mature market take 50% market share, the number two, 25, the number three, 12, number four, six, and the rest Mm. spread out amongst the rest. Now, the number one, their job is to defend their position against all comers. So they have to crush the competition historically. The number two, their job is to take market share from number one. So this was the Avis, we're number two, we try harder. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So damaging admission and uh, take market share away from the competition. Number three and four, their job is flanking. So for those of my age, uh, you'll remember companies like Tandem and Sun. You know, Sun did a phenomenal job. They did five flanking moves in a row, uh, which was very, very smart. So they created Java and they created uh, MIDI systems and all the other stuff that they did. Um, Airbnb, Uber are examples of this where you create a category and you grow so fast before anyone knows you're there and either they have to acquire you at an outrageous inflated rate or they just have to give up that bit of the market. And then the rest are guerrilla. So they're opportunists and they jump in and out and uh, they spend most of their time dodging bullets. Really interesting. Okay, and so let's have a look at this, uh, the bigger picture then because... One of the things that I've been working on, I'd be really curious on your take on this, is ecosystems. So finding people to genuinely cooperate with, within and without your organization, so that together you can solve bigger, juicier problems for your customer and deliver more value and also create an internal market for yourselves. Yeah. I'm curious how uh, what you're seeing in that respect, if anything. Well, I can say for, for myself, right, just within my own company, engaging in the ecosystem has been one of, the, one of the most important ways that I've gotten out of that 90% drop in business when COVID hit. So for example, instead of contracting, I expanded, right? There's a certain kind of narrow niche that we have been in as the YesWorks 
training teams to communicate and collaborate more effectively, helping the business leaders understand the ways that the structures inside their company influence people's behavior and influence the, the culture. That's been our niche. So what I started to do was to reach out to others in adjacent with adjacent expertise and saying, I want to partner with you. The clients that we have need your expertise. I'd love to have you on my bench, put you on my website. And when my clients need uh, what you've got, then I want to sell them your services. What would it cost me to sell that to them? And so that's a part of the way that I've created. That's one piece of how I've created uh, a broader, bigger ecosystem because that's a way for me to capture market, uh, to capture revenue that we were losing. And it's a way for other people in adjacent industries who have also had trouble marketing themselves during COVID to get work. I'm a part of that ecosystem for some of those same partners as well. And so it's a reciprocity, there's a reciprocity there. The other beauty of it is that even when you have nothing to offer directly, you always have something of value to deliver. And being a source of talent, of disruptive technology, of uh, new ways of solving difficult old problems, that's really precious. And it makes it very difficult for clients to leave the ecosystem as well. Right. Um, because where else are they going to go where they're going to get that level of real attention from people who know what the hell they're doing? Absolutely. You know, and uh, so another piece of it is that niching down is so valuable because long expertise is so much more potent than short expertise or broad expertise. At the same time, there are interdependencies. So, for example, I don't have enough expertise to help you restructure your sales team and restructure your, your compensation and restructure the way in which your, your whole sales operation works. That's not expertise that I have. And yet, all of those structures and all of, all of that stuff profoundly influences culture. And so if you go somewhere else to get your, I need to restructure my sales team expertise, and they're not thinking with the same sophistication and elegance that I am about culture, then we're going to end up with clashes at the borders of this that make my work less potent and make their work less potent. But if we can partner together as a part of an ecosystem, then we're going to be having these conversations and create a much more holistic solution. And because we're talking about the same problems from different perspectives, we get better, more elegant solutions. The more time I spend on these problems, the more elegant solutions are becoming. What's really interesting within the ecosystem, the next iteration, so I'm giving it all away for nothing. I'm probably going to regret this at some point, no doubt. But damn it, that's the right thing to do. Because the, the price of anyone stealing this is that when you improve it, you have to give it back. That's the deal. Now, the idea of the ecosystem is that everybody is bought into certain core values, one of which is you never take unfair or inappropriate advantage within the ecosystem. Well, ever. I don't think you ever should. But th there are certain core values that drive our behavior when we're working within the ecosystem or within any ecosystem, clients or partners. We co-develop solutions to common problems that our shared, serviceable, obtainable market 
has. And we choreograph the questions that we know the market has, and we coordinate our response together simultaneously uh, to answer those questions from our unique perspective. So what are you doing to prepare yourself for what's to come? What's impossible that if it were possible would change everything in your industry? Something along those lines, something big and meaty. But everyone answers it from their perspective. But we co-elevate everyone else's. Hmm. And we cooperate in this whole process so that what we're trying to do is create a win-win-win, win for the customer, win for the partners, win for ourselves. Right. And what we're also now starting to look at is how do we not only coordinate the messaging, but how do we coordinate the prospecting? So we target the same 60 accounts simultaneously to get the coverage. Mm. And all of us addressing it from each one's different perspective, but equipped with the right insightful questions to uncover the big wicked problems. And then we come back and collectively share our insight in terms of what do we understand is going on within this organization? What's likely to be happening in similar organizations? And then we can start going to market together. I'm really excited about this. It's going to take a hell of a lot of coordination. It's probably uh, going to be doomed to lots of failures along the way. But I'm optimistic. I, I genuinely believe that with the right people who believe that they have a responsibility to one another, mm-hmm. we can make it work. If we recruit the wrong people, it'll go horribly wrong. You know, I think one of the one of the great values that we can offer to our clients, and I think this goes right lockstep with what you're talking about, is that it's hard to be successful at and time consuming at vetting to vet vendors right to vet service providers and that's one of the one of the great burdens that our clients have is finding the other you know that okay they've found you or they've found me finding the others they're trying to piece together something that's that's really going to solve either a wide array or a complex uh, of problems or a complex problem it's incredibly costly if everybody's everybody has, that i speak to has hired some bombs Paid a lot of money, spent a lot of time, uh, got nowhere, or or even worse, you know, we we it there was some sabotage here. Yeah, I just spent time and money putting together what I called the with somebody else in my ecosystem putting together what we called the yeah I would totally refer you, COI's power breakfast, right? We all spent real time getting together with with folks that we had vetted, that we knew we could we were confident in recommending to our clients, not because we are magnanimous or altruistic, although there's, we both are generous people or we wouldn't be thinking in these ways, but because we know that we are more valuable to our clients when we are meeting and vetting for ourselves the other folks that they may need to hire. Interesting. And we're more likely to be hired because the same is true for those for the other folks in the in the in the room. It it plays to this whole concept that I've been talking about for a while now, which is why would you sell cold when you can sell hot? Mm-hmm. We know the telephone is a fantastic resource, and you phoning CEOs at seven a.m. pre-pandemic worked. But tell me something: how much more effective was that phone call? when you are hand-delivered by someone who is trusted by both of you. 
you know, you, incalculably, I mean, at least for me. I'm sure somebody can calculate it. But I, uh, on average, it's 16 to 18 times higher close rate. There you go. You sell hot. <laughs> they typically buy more on the first order. They buy more frequently. They refer more frequently. They churn less frequently. I mean, what's not to love about a hot, personal, hand-delivered introduction by someone trusted by both sides? Well, this then raises the question, why are sales leaders not thinking, how do we get our salespeople to spend more time selling hot? How do we get our salespeople, instead of making more dials, how do I get solved the problem of having them spend more time in front of the customer? Mm. Who already has those customers? How can we get them? You're making me think about, in my executive peer group, uh, there's a sales VP who said to me, you know, I keep asking my salespeople to do more relationship-based selling. And so I asked him, you know, what what does that mean to you? And he he told me, you know, some of the details of what he'd like to see, the kinds of behaviors that he'd like to see, and, and then also how he wants them to leverage those behaviors and the results of those behaviors for greater effectiveness in selling. I said, okay, you know, what are their what are their KPIs? And he listed off their KPIs. And I said, I don't see anything in these KPIs. That I bet everything the, was about doing as well. Yeah, everything was about doing, and everything was about uh, was about numbers. Nothing about relationships. Nothing. Nothing about kinds. engagement, and nothing about self. Right. So if you think about what gets measured, gets done. If you think about just the the operant conditioning of things like Pavlov, you know, well, if you're not if you're not paying attention to the psychology of behavior, then you're gonna fail at getting what you want. The big question here is are you actually giving your salespeople a really nasty limp? Say more. If you're, if you're only focusing on one aspect of this four-dimensional process then of course you're not going to get the results. And th- this is the thing that flabbergasts me. Uh, you know, I, I spent a, a goodly part of my career in the training industry. And I always focused, it was always a, an obsession of mine. How do I help my customer get the result that they wanted? But in the training industry generally, it's about how many people can I get to turn up and pay me? And then I can go away and there are no consequences for whether they implement or not. And to to my mind, I think we have to shift the way we think about how we buy these services, why we buy these services. No one buys software because they want software. No one buys cyber uh, security software because they want cyber security software. They don't want to be hacked and they don't want to be in court and they don't want to go to jail um, and they don't want to be fined. These are the things that actually they care about. Yeah, the last thing I want is another piece of software on my computer. Exactly. Um, Any more than they want training. People want the result to improve. So why are we not asking the question, how do we get better results from the people that we have? And what do we have to do in order to get them to want to do more of it willingly Mm. instead of having to force them back into the office? Why why do we entice them back so that they want to come back? Uh, Do we need them back in the office? Do they need to spend half an hour traveling, uh, wasting time when they would be better off basically having a shower? And that brings me back to the, you know, what we talked about earlier, the, the flawed thinking of I can't address the shortcomings in my people's performance right now. I can't let anybody go because I'm short staffed. 
right? This, this flawed thinking, you know, if you look at what do your top performers like? They like to be pressed. They like to be developed. They like to be challenged and they like to be in environments and surrounded by people who are peers, people who are mentors, even potentially. They don't want to be surrounded by what's that? You stretch them. That's right. And they don't want to be surrounded by people who are being permitted to skate. And so one of the things that happens if you if you prohibit skating behavior, whether that's by visiting consequences, right, by continuing to address skating behavior, or even by letting people go who won't let go of the skating behavior, is you see your top performers really step up. These are the times when you can trim the fat. You can learn that maybe you were, maybe you can get further with fewer people than you had before COVID because everybody is enjoying firing on all cylinders and they're in an environment that encourages and rewards firing on all cylinders, not just, not just rewards financially or rewards with attaboys, but rewards with fulfillment. Yeah, that would be fun, wouldn't it? (laughs) It's fun for me. Well, we, we know that when we, create the conditions where people feel like their work is important, where it's meaningful, where their work is valued, where they can see themselves making progress, where someone has their back, someone cares about their progress and development, where they come to work and they feel a sense of commonality, camaraderie, shared purpose, where the work they do stretches them these kind of employees are really highly engaged. They yeah. are more likely to give discretionary effort. They produce much higher uh, levels of profitability, product, daily production. There's lower uh, levels of absenteeism and sickness and turnover. They stay for longer. They refer their friends. And th- there is no downside to this. There is only downside to the attachment, to the idea that human beings can be driven like machines can be exploited and burnout is somehow treated as if it's okay. It's just an expe- a cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. Why? I think that shows shallow thinking. It shows a, a lack of compassion. And I don't think it's unreasonable in this day and age, certainly in the Western world, for us to be able to create these kind of positive conditions because we need them. Because let's be honest, Our economy, and certainly the U.S.'s economy and their empire, is on the decline. China is on the way up. And whether you like it or not, that is going to happen no matter how much we whinge and bitch about it. Uh, So why are we not thinking, well, they need a healthy European and American economy because they need markets to prop up their own regime because they need to continue the economic marvel That in 60 years, I was speaking to someone today, and 60 years ago, they couldn't afford cooking oil, and they only had fried food once a year, which was Chinese New Year. Now, in 60 years, 99% of the population has been brought above the poverty line. That's an economic miracle. Yeah. Now, speaking of China, you know, inarguably, well, let me put it this way, arguably, the the ability to exploit workers and drive them hard and burn them out and replace them 
is a is a potential advantage. We are never in the U.S. or in any of the other kind of de- democratic societies. We're never going to be able to compete with China on that advantage. Nope. So give it up, folks. Yep. Give it up. They yep. are going to win on that advantage every day of the week for decades, if not uh, if not Centuries. generations to come. So what we've got to do, and you know, strength finders and all kinds of other things are highlighting the the incredible advantages to finding where you have the advantage, where you have the strength, and exploiting that. So we've got to we've got to stop trying to outcompete China on the churn and burn, and instead outcompete China on humanity and the and the kinds of creativity that come in human environments. The kinds of uh, the kinds of innovation that come up in human environments; those are the places where we have the competitive advantage, and where they are not going to be able to, com- to outcompete us for generations to come. And again, I think we need to shift our thinking rather than just about competing. I think we need to look for well, what's in our mutual best interest. Wonderful. Not, let, let's be honest about it. Much as we want to, we can be pragmatic about this. We're not going to change the human rights record of the Chinese Communist government overnight. However, they do need strong economies in order to continue to fund their regime so that they don't get overthrown. Now, we can try and overthrow them, but it's not going to happen. And the, the, no amount of um, hectoring and uh, you know, uh, warmongering is going to make a whole heap of difference. The, the Chinese, why would they go after Taiwan? The Americans will have to intervene. They can just win over time. They, they play long games. Yeah. Their perception of time is different. And I think we need to understand the Chinese better. Uh, as we do, you know, African economies, you know, you're seeing uh, economies like Nigeria, it's two thirds the size of the United States in terms of population. There is a lot of technology know-how in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see it in Eastern Europe. All these scams that happened in the 80s and 90s uh, resulted in some very good technical know-how. And these people have set up companies now, but people are wary. So, uh, you know, I suspect there will be opportunities for us to really start thinking, how can we cooperate better? And I'm really curious in terms of cultural engineering, what you're doing in, or what you would advise people to do in order to create the conditions where people are willing to even consider cooperating and then do it instead of you know, collaborating at arm's length with, yeah. with signed paperwork and um, genuine cooperation. Well, you know, this is going to sound maybe hard-nosed, so I'll qualify it maybe afterward. But the one of the things that that I've been saying to leaders since the beginning of our company, and that that kind of makes people go, "Huh," is that I, I tell people that any job requirement that has no consequences for not meeting it is not actually a job requirement. <laughs> it's something on your wish list. Right there, there are consequences for not meeting requirements. Right, if you try to drive a car that has uh, three wheels and instead of four, it's not going to go. Four wheels are a, are a requirement. Four inflated tires—that's a requirement. So I'm not talking about punishments. I'm talking about natural consequences. Um, I was telling this. Uh, I was. I said this to a group of CEOs the other day, and one of them. One of them talked about being in a, in a 
turnaround situation where the, the new turnaround CEO came in, held a, held a leadership meeting, and people were 10 and 15 minutes late. And the next day, he locked the door at the beginning of the meeting time. Right? I wouldn't advise doing that without, pro, without uh, prior notice. And that's a, that's a natural consequence. I think once you give, con- give notice, that makes a ton of sense. It's not a punishment. It's just a, hey, the bus left, folks. You can't get on the bus once it's left the station. So cooperation, you've got to figure out ways to operationalize cooperation, define cooperation. What do we mean when we say cooperation? And then it's got to be a, those, those things, those behaviors have got to be a job requirement. If that's something that you want in your company, and I advise, I would recommend that it is. Uh, Stephen Bakke wrote a book called Joy at Work. And one of the, the central principle of, of joy at work is push decision-making down. That was Stephen who? Bakke. Uh, I think it's B-A-K-K-E. And, you know, he's not just saying, hey, you decide, and then being hands-off. He's saying, you decide, and then he may define some of what he, some of the behaviors that he wants to see as you're making that decision. So, so if Stephen were, my, were, were your boss and mine, Marcus, he might say to me, Aaron, the decision is yours. Before you make the decision, I want you to consult with Marcus and get Marcus's input, right? So that is a way of of requiring cooperation. Mm-hmm. That's a way of requiring collaboration. It's a specific beha- specific collaborative behavior that he's required as part of my job. And then what later when I come to him and say, okay, my decision is to go with A, not B, he'll say, what did Marcus say? And that question, what did Marcus say, is a way to measure, did I do that behavior? Very interesting. Okay. One of the areas that I've been working in this year, which has been very interesting, is in the area of management performance improvement. And looking at how the middle management layer is the latent powerhouse of most businesses. And it's untapped. And at the moment, what we're seeing actually is it's a bottleneck because managers have a tendency to answer the question, to do the work, rather than to stop and think, ask a question, have the person try and work it out for themselves, then agree an outcome, agree a result, and make them accountable. Now, what's really interesting, or to make, have them take ownership rather than accountable because they make themselves accountable. Now, what's really interesting about this is in the companies that I've seen this in action, you're seeing return on investment north of 70x. Now, that's a pretty damn good return, but it pays dividends year after year after year because right. in the same way that open source, you only have to solve the problem once. Well, if you've coached someone to solve the problem for themselves, you don't have to teach them 12 times, uh, which is what often happens. And at the moment, the average manager is getting 16 to 20 interruptions a day where they're asked for help or advice or direction or whatever. Now, if you just think of that as a third of those are teachable moments, that means there's nearly two and a half thousand a year that are lost if you just have two managers. When you do 20 managers, that's 24,000. When you start getting up to 10,000 managers, it's 28 and a half million teachable moments that you can now implement. Now, as a culture engineer, how cool is that? 
It's tremendous on, on uncountable levels. And a lot of leaders say, I don't have time, right? That takes too long. They might get it wrong, right? There are lots of ways in which the cost of slowing down, coaching, leaving the decision in somebody else's hands, there are lots of ways in which the cost of that is really evident. The benefit is a little bit harder to see because it comes a little bit later. One of the questions that I ask often, and I think it's really closely related to this, you, Mr. CEO, you, Mr. Mr. Senior Manager, one of the reasons that I'm hearing from you that you jump in to rescue your direct report is you jump in to rescue them so that they don't fail. Let me ask you this, how you have, you know, how, how to, what button to push because of your experience and because of the insights that you have, the knowledge that you have, the judgment that you have, how did you develop that judgment? Oh, well, I tried a lot of stuff. I failed. I learned from my failures probably more than my successes. Okay. So why are you depriving your people? Exactly right. Not only why are you depriving them, but also Okay, let's just say that that this place where you rescued your direct report, you saved how much? $3,000. Let's just, you saved the company $3,000 by preventing that failure. What would you have paid in tuition to give that direct report the knowledge and insight that they would have gained from that failure? Well, if the number is anywhere close to $3,000, you have just lost a valuable training opportunity that would continue to pay dividends for, for years to come as long as you've got that, that person in your, uh, on your team. So what are the questions? I know this is putting you on the spot, so we can always edit this out. Um, but what are the questions that if a founder or a CEO was taking a blank sheet of paper to redesigning their business, mm. what are the three or four big, gnarly questions that they should wrestle with first before they start looking at their people, before they start thinking about anything else? I don't know if I fully understand the question. I'll, I'll go with it anyway, because I think it'll, the, way, the, the ways you're starting to have me think would be valuable. I was talking to a CEO last year who had, over the course of time, had one company bought a second company in an adjacent market, bought a third company, again, adjacent, uh, adjacent services, and never really merged them. They were all doing business under separate names with largely separate teams and separate, and there wasn't any cross-selling going on, really, to speak of, essentially zero. Uh, and what he realized for himself was this was, a, this was a mistake, not to merge these companies, not to bring them under one brand. And he wanted to start to do that which is much harder decades on than it is uh, than it is at the start. In theory, theory and practice are the same in practice, they're not. <laughs> so one of the questions that I asked him was, if you were building a brand new company with all of the accumulated assets of these three companies, nice. how would you allocate those assets? How would you structure those assets? And I think that's a question that we resist asking because it, because it's so scary to think about starting from scratch. That's a beautiful question. I like that. And in so many ways, it actually is possible for us to reallocate our company's assets at any moment. I don't want to undersell the effort and the danger that that is. And I think we overestimate it. 
But again, as an exercise, it does bear doing right. in order that you can understand what your options are. As a um, thought experiment, it, it's free. Uh, exactly. And it may well give you insight and raise questions into, well, hang on a second, that looks like that's awfully ineffective. So why do we keep doing that? So again, one of the things I've seen happen time and time again is an attachment to a particular way of doing things or what made you successful when, you know, back in the day when people still had to walk 17 miles to get um, you know, bread from the local baker and all that. So I'm really curious, where do you see the attachment that is most harmful in businesses at leadership level? I'll go to the trite. That's, this is how we've always done it, right? There's, there's that. There's also, you know, from, from my vantage as somebody who's spending all my time helping leaders engineer culture, there's maybe legacy policies and legacy structures. And by legacy, I don't just mean what's been existing in their company, but what's existing in the, H, in the structures of HR. Human resources as a department was created to protect the institution from the people. And that legacy is still there. I can't count the number of companies that I've been in where one of the core values in their website, and to be fair, in a lot of them, it's a core value that the CEO and that the, the leadership team really holds is trust, right? They really believe it. And it really is true. And they operationalize it to the best of their ability. And then they've essentially inherited from decades prior or from or from hiring an HR manager who doesn't understand the implications of HR policies, there are so many HR policies that say, I don't trust you, Mr. Employee, as far as I can throw you. I was mentioning to you before we started recording, I think, I just came back from the hospital, right? I, I had surgery after being hospitalized from the emergency room. And in the emergency room, in my hospital room before the surgery, after the surgery, the hospital asked me multiple times, do you need a note? Essentially, right? They, they had some terms, right? But essentially, do you need a doctor's note to excuse you from having been absent from work? Yeah. I guarantee you the hospital did not create this need, right? The hospital doesn't give a crap until people ask them again and again and again and again. Yeah. Right, because it's 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 hospital resources to ask that question. It's hospital resources to generate that yeah. that document. Um, policies like the need to come back from sick leave with proof you were sick says, "I don't trust you as far as I can throw you." There's an absence of trust throughout. Right, you see, so if you channels alliances all the time. So if you have a core value that's trust, and then you're requiring people to come back from the hospital with a note then you are a hypocrite. And I say that with all the love in the world, right? I'm a hypocrite too. <laughs> I'm recovering I, to the best of my ability from my own hypocrisy. But there are also policies like when you come back from bereavement leave, I saw a, an argument between a front level manager and the HR, right? When you come back from bereavement leave, you've got to have either a death certificate or an obituary. And then what happens is the employee brings, instead of either of those documents, they bring the program from the funeral home. And then there's an argument about whether that is sufficient because the policy says A or B, but they brought C. Ah, 
on that happy note horrific (laughs) on that happy note unfortunately we've come to the top of the hour we need to bring it to a close so let's try and finish on a happier note one final bit of advice um, for people going into this VUCA world Mm. volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous how do you prepare your people for that in about 90 seconds push decision making down give people authority especially they must have the authority to accomplish what you're asking them to do right as opposed to the the uh the call center folks who are measured on single call resolutions that don't get escalated but then they don't have the authority to satisfy the customer that's a horrific unresolvable conflict and then the last thing that I'll say is tell people not just hey right one of the principles that that we teach is yay for failing so don't tell people just hey we accept failure tell people you will fail give people the expectation not failure is okay but i i am confident i am secure in the knowledge you are going to fail and i'm telling you now it's okay absolutely and you're not going to get punished for it right absolutely Aaron Schmickler, this has been very, very interesting. How can people get hold of you? (laughs) I'm the only Aaron Schmickler on LinkedIn, so it's easy to find me there. The yesworks.com is our website, and you can book 15 minutes with me there. Excellent. Aaron, thank you. Thank you so much, Marcus. It's always fun talking. This has been Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, subscribe. Give us an honest review on Apple. And if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And in the blurb, there is a link if you want to talk to me about training or coaching. Speak to you soon. Take care. Happy selling. Bye-bye.